according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found. Matthew chapter 2 this morning. Matthew chapter 2. Examining our passage here in verses 1 through 12, the visit of the Magi. Verses 1 through 12. This overlaps somewhat with the next event, which is uh, Herod, or the flight to Egypt, followed by uh, Herod and the massacre of the babies. Because although the material for Herod and the massacre of the babies takes place in verses 16 through 18, the the uh, previews of that occur in this text with uh, Herod's questions to the Magi and his secret intentions and all the things that we catch glimpses of here. So um, we'll do a little bit of double duty in this passage dealing with the Magi and give some clues ahead here for Herod, but we'll really reserve most of what we're dealing with with Herod until we get down to verses 16 through 18 or with the flight into Egypt of verses 13 through 15. All right, before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer. Is our volume good? A little loud, a little loud, a little loud. Can we drop it a little bit? All right, bringing it down, bringing it down, bringing it down, bringing it down. All right. The only way I can tell is that I typically cannot hear myself. All right. There we go. Are you adjusting the input level or are you adjusting the master output? What did Mr. Beveridge tell you to do? Adjust the speaker output. You're failing in your instructions. So you should leave the input level where it's been, and you should simply adjust the output that uh, moves our speakers up and down. All right? We don't want to tweak the input. That goes to the cassette tape. That goes to the MP3. In fact, right now, people all over the world are listening to these very words as the MP3 is being recorded. All right, I think that's better. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness in our lives day by day. Thank you, Father, for a real blessing on a trip to Dallas this week, Monday and Tuesday. And thank you for all the fellowship and for the like-mindedness and the blessings of meeting Well, Father, they were strangers before I met them, but they weren't strangers because we're brethren in Christ, and I want to thank you for that. Thank you for so many abundant life blessings, the things that you have prepared for us since before the foundation of the world, and yet, Father, we see them unfolded day by day. And now, Father, here's another day. This is a day uh, for our blessing. It's a day for our growth. It's a day for our testing, for our application, for so many things. But we celebrate the fact that it's a day for Bible class, and here we are, Father, to receive additional instruction. So we're asking that you would set aside distraction. We're asking that you would guide us in the truth, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. We have really gone through the first three out of the four points here, and so today we should have no problem in wrapping it up, and if we take a couple of side trips, we ought to have the uh, time to do so. It says in verse 1, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying... All right, and all the only adjective we have in verse 2, uh, or preposition in terms of time, is after. After. 
And that's kind of vague, don't you think? <laughs> you know, we can say after I was born, and that would apply to any point of time from 1969 to now. I mean, it could apply to yesterday. It could apply to to uh, when uh, people landed on the moon, so to speak. All right. Well, we re- we gave you some points of study here that. Up to two years has gone by. We don't have necessarily the clues in verse 1, but we do pick up on the clues in verse 7 and in verse 16 from the appearance of the star and then from the satanic attempt to massacre the Christ. And we get a two-year time frame. And so we understand that up to, as a limit, as a maximum range, all right, it could have been as short as, say, the next day, it could have been the next week. See, we anticipate that some time has gone by because they're no longer in the manger here. When the wise men finally arrive, you'll notice there is a telling clue in verse 11, and coming into the house, and coming into the house, see. And we anticipate or we understand that with the census being concluded and with all of these travelers that had come to town to register and the reason why Bethlehem was packed to the gills because every Davidic descendant was there registering their property, walking off their boundaries, uh, uh, establishing their taxation and all the rest. Once the census was complete, they went back to where they came from. See, And you would anticipate that Mary and Joseph would, would have or could have done something similar. So a period of time has gone by in which the census activities are all complete. Bethlehem has emptied out quite a bit. Uh, they don't have to stay in the manger anymore. Now they can move into the inn or they can find a private home. And the things that happen here, we recognize that they are in a, a home of some sort by virtue of uh, the word house that occurs there in verse 11. So we don't have the total time frame established, but we do have a maximum uh, up to two years. Secondly, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem for the purpose of worshiping the king of the Jews. And we'll do, if we have some time today, we'll do a little Bible dictionary work and we'll look at some things here with respect to the Magi. I found a couple of real good articles and things that would be helpful to share with you here this morning. Uh, the English word magi is really a transliteration more than anything else from the Greek, the magoi in the plural, the singular being magos. And uh, you can do some work on that if you like from Bible dictionaries, encyclopedias, other uh, study tools that will help you in uh, understanding their background. Uh, they arrived for the, purposes, for the purpose of worshiping. They came for the purpose of worshiping. Notice they didn't come for the purpose of submitting, for the purpose of, see, we get, we get this terrible image of, of we three kings of Orient are, that these were kings that were coming to submit. Jesus Christ was not seated on the Davidic throne at this point. Jesus Christ was in diapers. <laughs> All right? We understand this? In fact, even through the entirety of his first advent, he did not claim, make any regal or royal claims. He did not claim to sit on the throne. He accepted the title Son of David. It was a legitimate title. He was the Son of David, always is the Son of David. But he was not coronated, and it was not the Father's will to coronate him until the cross. See, the cross must precede the crown. It's all throughout first advent. He was not expecting the Father to coronate him. These magi did not show up to uh, bend the knee, as it were, to submit to a king, but they were here legitimately to worship, to worship the Lord their God, as God became flesh and dwelt among us. So they came for the purpose of worshiping. Part of the evidence to the deity of Jesus Christ, of course, is that he accepted worship. Angels, elect angels, will never accept worship. Men, of course, are not entitled to worship. 
Only God is worthy of and entitled to worship. And God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, accepted worship. Not only here where he's an infant and doesn't have much choice over what happens. <laughs> you know, People can hold him, they can hug him, they can tweak his cheek, they can, uh, they can worship. But on into his adult life, he would continue to accept worship, adoration, and so forth, as he's entitled to. Their number is not stated, nor does Scripture call them kings. So if you're real attached to that Christmas tune, that's fine. You can like it if you like, but it's not based upon the biblical record. The Magi were Babylonian and Persian astrologers who had tremendous influence in the eastern thrones. And I won't go back to Daniel 2 this morning. Uh, we spent some time there last week. We saw them. We could also go to Genesis and Exodus. We can see a similar structure in the uh, magicians and conjurers of Pharaoh, uh, the folks that Moses had to do battle with, uh, for example. Uh, most ancient thrones, most ancient kings had such uh, what I call the supernatural advisory board. They had their, their uh, witch doctors and astrologers and soothsayers. The Romans in particular, by the time we get to the New Testament, the Romans were very uh, superstitious. They were very much uh, influenced by the soothsayers and the portents. And if, uh, if a particular uh, bit of uh, entrails of, of uh, geese and other animals just didn't look good, then a lot of Roman generals would not engage in battle. See, a little bit of that was uh, brought out at the beginning in, uh, in uh, Gladiator, for example, uh, a scene that took place there. And uh, you might have picked up on that or it might have just flown by. But now... Uh, with uh, this kind of teaching and uh, exposure to the soothsayers and the the uh, magicians and all the rest, that uh, will hopefully have a whole new significance for you the next time you watch Gladiator, which is weekly, isn't it? <laughs> all right, maybe not. Anyway, I, I enjoy such things. Point B, they came in response to his star, likely an angel, commonly called stars, this star's guidance led them to Jerusalem, not Bethlehem, for a public audience with Herod. Was the star lost? <laughs> Was the star confused? I mean, the star went to the east and, and, and got these guys. Whether it was 3E or 103 or however many there were, it doesn't tell us. All right, We know it was more than one because it wasn't just a, a, a magos that came from the east. It was plural, magoi, so it must have been more than one. But it could have been three, could have been 300, could have been who knows how many. But a number of this college of scholars descended from those that Daniel trained in Babylon observed this star that was acting in a most unstar-like manner. <laughs> you know, it came and it moved and it and they followed and all of this. And uh, now all of a sudden did it goof up? It could have taken them straight to Bethlehem, Right? And Pharaoh would have been none the wiser, clueless. No, the star took him to Jerusalem. And quite interestingly enough, it disappeared at that point. And so the Magi show up and they're looking around and their star disappeared. Okay, It would be kind of like the children of Israel in the wilderness. If all of a sudden they've been following a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, what would they do all of a sudden one day if, boom, there was nothing? You know, where to go? <laughs> you know, it's supposed to be here. Well, that never happened to Israel in the wilderness. They always had the cloud there. They always had the fire by night there. But they get to Jerusalem and they're looking around here in verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw, past tense, we, we're not seeing it now, it disappeared on us. We saw 
his star in the east and come to worship him. Now the star will make a reappearance again after Herod sends them out. Uh, he sends them to Bethlehem in verse 8 and uh, verse 9. Hearing the king, they went their way. And the star, oh, there it is again, popped back up. Which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. All right. So uh, this angel was perfectly capable of, of holding them by the hand, walking them to, you know, turn left here, turn right here. You know, it's kind of like, I guess... Technology today is trying to replicate that with, with OnStar, right? Or some kind of <laughs> some kind of navigation device, a computer in your car, and you, you want directions to uh, wherever you're going, and, and the car tells you, you know, take the next left, take the next right. You know, you're just kind of driving along. Could have used that in Dallas yesterday. <laughs> what a confusing town. So here's the star, and he's going to walk him right in. He's going to take him to the very house, you know? So they don't mistake the issue. See, God the Father wanted this Christ to be so identified and so undeniable. And so this star is taking them to the town, to the street, to the house, shining over the house. You can imagine the, moon, the starlight just shining down upon the house. This house here. <laughs> there can be no, no doubting it. And yet, it didn't go there first. It went to Jerusalem first. That's what I'm trying to highlight here in these points. Went there for a public audience with Herod. And reasons for that, of course, they're not explicitly spelled out here in Matthew. But I think I shared this with you a couple of times now and will most likely keep referring back to this mystery of godliness in 1 Timothy 3. This is, uh, you know, Paul didn't write a whole lot of music. Paul was very lawyer-like. He was very doctrinal. He gave a lot of outlines. Paul gave a lot of logical arguments. But here's a song an actual psalm in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 3.16 By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who is revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That phrase, proclaimed among the nations or the Gentiles, recognizing that uh, this announcement to Herod is a part of that particular fulfillment right there. That this uh, the Roman Empire was put on notice. Uh, the Phoenicians were put on notice at one point where Christ went to the Syro-Phoenician region. Uh, when he crossed over to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee and that Decapolis region to the east and northeast of the Sea of Galilee, then that was more in the Greek region. See, of course, he went to Egypt as an infant. Um, he lived among the Jews. He was a Jew. His primary ministry was to the Jews, but not exclusively. We want to, re we want to remember that. When the centurion comes to him, uh, when, when other Gentiles come to him, in fact, on a number of occasions, Jesus Christ is very amazed that he can find a level of faith among the Gentiles that he's not finding among his own people, among the Jewish people who should know better, because theirs are the Scriptures. Theirs are the prophets, and the Gentile. In some cases, the Gentiles had a greater level of faith than many of the Jews that Jesus Christ was encountering. But notice the public audience with Herod, all uh, in a very upfront, public manner. Herod and all Jerusalem with him was greatly troubled over the birth of a Jewish king. Now, if this was in secret, then all Jerusalem wouldn't be troubled. But this was a very public hearing. These magi from the east, however many there were. And I think quite likely more than three of them, see, enough to 
cause a stir, enough to cause a huge stir. Men of great wealth, uh, they're not traveling alone. Men of great wealth are going to have staff. They're going to have baggage handlers. They're going to have camel drivers. They're going to have guards. They're going to have, now they're not invading with an army. The Romans would never allow that, but a, a caravan with private guards. So, you know, say, okay, there's three wise men. Um, they'll have 30 staff with them. There's 10 wise men, all right? Now there's 100 staff with them in terms of the baggage handlers, the porters, the, the tent setter-uppers, the, the cooks, all right? They're godly men, so they're not going to have the, the female companions that the unbelievers would carry with them. But the typical caravan followers, the cooks, the uh, camel drivers, and, and all the rest. This is a significant arrival when this caravan reaches Jerusalem. Herod and all Jerusalem with him are greatly troubled. And uh, I'll go ahead and skim through these other items here um, because I think we focused on them correctly last, uh, last week. Don't overlook that link between the Christ and the Messiah from verse 2 to verse 4 because they show up and they say, where is the king of the Jews? And then when he says, can you excuse me a minute? And he steps out, <laughs> you know, uh, says, I'll be right back. And he sneaks out and he sends his messengers and he gathers together all the chief priests and scribes and he says, where is the Messiah going to be born? Herod understood that link and that connection from verse 2 to verse 4 is significant. I think more so because he made that connection mentally, academically, with knowledge, with gnosis we say, and yet he still rejects the Christ. He makes the connection between the king of the Jews, the Christ, and he rejects the Christ. See, like how many of the Pharisees that knew that he was sent from God and yet rejected his message. That kind of hardness of heart I find hard to believe and yet that's what happens when the person's blinded by their hatred, blinded by the systems of darkness. The chief priests and the scribes cooperated with Herod. You know, normally, there was such antagonism <laughs> when you study the politics of the day between the Herodians, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Um, and here we have chief priests and scribes. Now, to be fair, uh, the Pharisees are not mentioned and may not have been party to this. But chief priests and scribes are indicated here. So you have your Sadducee party within the Sanhedrin. And it's quite interesting. They couldn't stand one another, but they tolerated one another because they could mutually get rich. As long as Herod didn't rock the boat with the Romans, as long as he paid his tribute, he could run his kingdom the way he saw fit. And so long as the Sadducees didn't rock the boat, so long as the Sanhedrin didn't rock the boat with Herod, he let them pretty much do as they saw fit. See, Herod uh, was pleased to uh, let the Sadducees, let the Sanhedrin run all of the religious matters. Um, pleased to let them run all the things in the temple. In fact, he helped. He spent millions building that temple for them. So it's remarkable they cooperated when they had to, when it served their mutual purposes. Isn't that the way the world works? <laughs> but then other times, of course, they despised one another. More often than not. 
But here we find some cooperation. We're going to find more cooperation. In fact, we're going to find the ultimate cooperation at the end of Jesus Christ's ministry when not only the Herodians, not only the Sadducees, but also the Pharisees and all these other groups are going to come together in total agreement that Christ must die. <laughs> all right? His, uh, his, the need for his death will once again reunite these factions and uh, we will come to that at some point of time down the road. In verse 7, Herod summoned the Magi for a secret audience, and the Magi provided the two-year time frame. Everything that from the Magi's point of view had been done publicly, but in verse 7, Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. He brings them behind closed doors, as it were, for a private session, trying to keep a lid on the scandal, keep a lid on the news, all right? We need to quit talking about this king being born. We don't want that story to spread. So it determines the time frame. They provided it. Now see, they don't know. They don't realize that they're setting up a murder. They don't realize that they're setting up the massacre of all these babies. The Magi uh, are arriving and they're excited that the king of the Jews has been born. You imagine that it, maybe it never crossed their mind that this Roman king of the Jews may not like the fact, <laughs> you know? So they provide the time frame. And so he sends them off. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. See, you go find him, come back, report to me, and I will come and worship him as well. Of course, he's telling a lie. He's got the forked tongue of the serpent here, and he's lying through his teeth. Because his intention is uh, to, uh, to massacre this child. So, point four. The Magi continue their journey to the Lord. The Magi continued their journey to the Lord. And we have this now in verses 9 through 12. 9 through 12. And as I said, this shouldn't take us a whole lot of time here this morning, so we'll have some time for some additional studies, some questions, side trips perhaps. And move on to uh, our 13th area, the flight to Egypt and the massacre of the infants uh, one week from today. Subpoint A, they did not need Herod's directions as they followed the star to the very house where the child was. They did not need Herod's directions as they followed the star to the very house where the child was. Make a couple of observations here. Subpoint A, they did not need Herod's directions. I mean, if you've got OnStar installed in your vehicle, why do you need directions? <laughs> you know, you don't need your friend to draw you this little sketchy, crude map on a napkin somewhere. All right. They followed the star to the very house, the Oikia, where the child, the Pideon, was. This then becomes a clue as well. Verse 9 says, After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, 
which they had seen in the east, went on before them, until it came and stood over the place where the Pideon, where the child was. And it's an interesting change of vocabulary here from a Brephos to a Pideon, the Brephos being the infant, the newborn. And a Pideon is a separate word for child, indicating, again, a little bit older. Up to perhaps two years have gone by here. Different terminology from the infant. This is no longer the, the, the little infant in the manger. This is no longer the, little, the, the, the newborn. This is no longer the brephos, as it were. But he's now a pideon, up to two years old. Okay, Is he standing at this point? Is he walking at this point? We think of him as a toddler, maybe, at this point. See? And some of the vocabulary is all just like it is in English. Where does one stop and when does the other begin? See? <laughs> is always pretty determined that she's not a baby anymore, and uh, and she says I'm a toddler. And I say, well, you know, Zoe, you're kind of stretching now. You're maybe you're at the upper limit of toddler. I don't know where, where does toddler end, you know. And then what what happens after a toddler? You're just a, a kid, you know. You're a little kid. What you know, preschooler. Anyway, so terms are a little flexible, and uh, they may overlap some and. You may not strictly be able to peg an age for a term. We can not do it in English, and we certainly can't do it in Greek, although I think some people try to, and they try to make these hard and fast rules and say, well, in every case, this is what it's going to be. And I think that stretches it too far and kind of violates the rules of language. But we do notice two things. It's a house, not a manger. okay, And it is a pideon and not a brephos. We make those two observations. And without reading too much into the whole thing, we simply make those observations and recognize, hey, time has gone by. He's in a house, not a manger. He's a, a, a toddler, say, and no longer a newborn. And they have come to worship. All right, We can make those as observations. Point B. They worshipped him and presented him with gifts. They worshipped him and presented him with gifts. says in verse 11, After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Didn't worship her, you notice. <laughs> All right. She's not worthy of worship. She's just mom. All right. She's not the queen of heaven. Or any of these other things. They fell to the ground and worshipped him. Now, Joseph is not in verse 11. In fact, Joseph's not in 9 through 13. 12, but Joseph is in verse 14. See, when they had gone, and behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. So he is still alive, he is still around. Okay? We see Joseph here, we see Joseph again in Luke 2 when Christ is 12 years old. But that's the last we ever see of Joseph. And uh, given the remainder of the, of the gospel record, it appears that Joseph has died, that Mary is now a widow, and her sons and her daughters and uh, are there traveling with her. And Joseph's never mentioned again after the, the incident in the temple at age 12 that we have recorded for us in Luke chapter 2. But Joseph is here. He's just not in the house when the, uh, when the wise men arrive. All right? He's not in the house when the Magi come in. and it's, Or if he's there, it's not mentioned. And I think it would have been mentioned had he been there. Again, part of the, part of the narrative that Time has gone by. Well, what's, what's, what do you think Joseph's doing at this point? Probably out working. <laughs> you know? 
He's got carpentry skills. He's got to bring some money in. He's got to work. They haven't uh, returned back to uh, Nazareth where his uh, business had previously been established. So they come in, they see the child, they see the mother, and they fall to the ground and they worship, not the mother, they worship the child. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, so much has gone into these gifts. So many, I have heard sermons, I have read books, I have seen some very impressive breakdowns on the on what gold represents, what uh, frankincense represents, what myrrh represents. I have seen studies that have broken down the symbolism and the uh, the uh, message within by allegorizing this passage. The problem is, and I don't have any problem with symbolism. I don't have any problem with imagery. I have no problem with prophecy and foreshadowing and fulfillment. But because I've taught Daniel, I've taught Ezekiel, I haven't dodged any prophetic passage. All right, but when when we have symbolism, I want the Bible to to put it in there, <laughs> and then I want the Bible to explain it. All right. So if I may, just to walk you through this, and we can do this in Daniel, we can do this in Ezekiel, we can do this in Revelation. So join me in Revelation chapter one. Take a few moments to do this with you here so that you can do this with anybody else. Somebody that comes along and tries to do all these things. Okay? In Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, when it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his, his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. This is what the Apostle John saw when he turned, and he saw this in his vision. And it knocks him out. <laughs> All right? Falls to his feet like a dead man. Now, a lot of what he saw was symbolic. A lot of what he saw was representative. That's what we mean by symbolic. He really did see the lampstands. But the lampstands stood for something. Okay? Likewise, he really did see the robe. He really did see the sash. He really did see the hair. Were those symbolic? Did they mean something too? Or was that what he saw? Is that what the Lord was wearing? Now, when the Bible puts symbolism in that is designed to teach something, it explains the symbols. And you don't need to have a real genius pastor to impress you with his credentials or his degrees or how smart he is to explain these things to you. You just have to have a pastor faithful enough to say, look at verse 20. <laughs> All right? Because the Bible is going to explain these things. 
As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels and the messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. All right? Bingo. Symbols are explained. All right? Take it from there. All right? Now, what about his golden sash? I think that golden sash should mean something. In fact, I think it represented... Uh, it represented the, the wealth and prosperity that churches should have in the, in the dispensation of the church. And I think since he was wearing a golden sash, I think we should all symbolically have golden sashes. I think we should all be, uh, we should be rich. I think we should have uh, fat bank accounts and fat wallets and we should have diversified portfolios. In fact, we should, uh, we should be rolling in the dough. Well, where did I get that? It wasn't in the Bible. There's no, there's no verse 21 here that says, and the uh, golden sash you saw me wearing was such and such. Okay? It's not spelled out. It is not spelled out as being symbolic. And so I'm not going to try to make it symbolic when the Bible doesn't tell me it's symbolic. Okay? We do the same thing in Ezekiel. We do the same thing in Daniel. We do the same thing everywhere in apocalyptic literature or prophetic literature and so forth. When we recognize the genre of the literature we're studying, when we recognize the nature of what's being explained. If it's explained, we take God's explanation. If it's not explained, we don't try to make up our own. Because where's the control then? There's no control. I can say it means this, and another pastor can come along and say, well, it means that. Another pastor can come along and say, I think it means this other thing. And it's all relative based upon however clever the pastor might be to make stuff up. Okay? And it doesn't have to be deliberate fraud. It could be unintentional. The pastor may have good intentions. But he's reading into the text when God himself didn't spell out the symbolism. All right? You know, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he had a statue and it had a head of gold and chest of silver and belly and thighs of bronze and legs and feet of iron. See, and boy, we can get up and make all kinds of things up about that, except that the Bible itself spelled it out and, and told us what, that they were four kingdoms, told us what the, what the symbolism represented. And Daniel was able to explain that to Nebuchadnezzar. So, let's not get wrapped up in symbolism particularly of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Because the text, neither the immediate text in Matthew 2, nor prophetic text from the Old Testament, nor explanatory text afterwards, has seen fit to show us what this symbolism might mean, or that it even is symbolism. All right. There were plenty of times, you know, Paul wrote, what, 13 books? 14, if you're one of those Hebrews people that thinks Paul wrote Hebrews, okay? Uh, Paul wrote 13 books, he didn't write Hebrews. I can tell you that with confidence. And you can't prove me wrong until the rapture, so that's fine. Um, John wrote uh, a gospel and three epistles, Peter wrote uh, a couple of epistles, okay? There were plenty of opportunities for these people who were writing books later to, to develop this symbolism of gold, frankincense, and myrrh and go back to the babe and uh, go back to the child in Bethlehem, go back to the Magi, use that as an illustration, lay out all kinds of things. They could have done it, but they didn't. 
Because this isn't symbolic of anything. These are gifts. And these are what the gifts are. See, like Christ was wearing a sash and it was golden. That's what it was. And we're not finding symbolism in it or trying to draw out a, a mystical application in things. All right? And the only reason I'm going into this is because there is a tendency for uh, allegorization that's out there. It's just something ferocious. And churches get caught up in it. And people will tell you that, well, you know, there really was no Adam and Eve. That, um, you know, that story about Adam and Eve, there really were no literal Adam and Eve. But it was a a picture. It was symbolic. It it told us the story of obedience and disobedience. and and, uh, But we don't believe it really happened. It was just symbolic. And so they... They they turn Adam and Eve into symbols. Well, the Bible never did that. In fact, the Bible expre- expressly said that they were real people. Jesus Christ told the the folks there that were criticizing him about all these things and trying to uh, trick him on a divorce question and trying to do all these other things. And he says, "Well, you know, in the beginning, God created the male and female, <laughs> and He considered Adam and Eve to be literal people. And then it's important." It is so important that we don't confuse the literal interpretation of Scripture with any symbolism that we try to throw in there. Now, sub-point one. This does not fulfill Psalm 72, verses 10 and 11, or other such Old Testament passages. You will read commentaries, though, that will tell you that. You might hear pastors that will tell you that. Guys on the radio might tell you that. This... The gift of these wise men does not fulfill Psalm 72, verses 10 and 11, or other such Old Testament passages. Psalm 72, 10 and 11. Let's look at it. Psalm 72, verses 10 and 11. find it fascinating. Psalm 72 is a psalm of Solomon. Okay, Most of the psalms were written by David. Over half of 150 psalms were written by David. This one was written by Solomon. You understand uh, David was the king of warfare, the king of bloodshed, the king of conquest. Solomon, his son, was the king of peace. They both foreshadowed Christ, of course, who's going to come at second advent in battle in victory and conquest, and then he will reign in peace. So it took both David and Solomon to prefigure what the Christ will be when he reigns. Now in Psalm 72, uh, verse 8 says, May he also rule from sea to sea. May he also rule from sea to sea. This is a messianic passage looking ahead to second advent, looking ahead to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Quite interesting how uh, the United States adopted this and historically in their concept of manifest destiny and the concept of, of the glory of the new nation of America and the freedom we have and the push to the West and the, the desire to reign from sea to sea, from sea to shining sea. I know we still sing that. It's quite interesting. In the history of our nation, how certain folks uh, felt 
felt it appropriate to adopt messianic language in their own understanding of the manifest destiny of the United States of America, perhaps confusing client nation with messianic promises for Israel. May he also rule from sea to sea, from the river to the, land, to the ends of the earth. Let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. Now, these are wise men from the east. They're not necessarily nomads. And uh, simply from the east, yes, there is desert to the east, but there is also civilization to the east where the Magi were centered in Babylon and Persia in regions to the east. Verse 10, let the kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. Let all kings bow down before him. All nations serve him. All right. Now, do you see some differences in verses 10 and 11 that aren't really working themselves out here in Matthew 2? You know, Tarshish is far to the west. And the islands, where it says kings of Tarshish and of the islands bring presents. And you can do some geography work and you can find perhaps references to Spain with Tarshish and uh, Great Britain and the British Isles with the islands, perhaps. Sheba and Seba offering gifts. You can find regions to the east and the Arabian territories. Um, but it's a stretch to try to force the Magi into here. And then it says all kings bow down before him. Well, Herod certainly didn't. (laughs) Caesar certainly didn't. You know, when the Bible says all, what does it mean? It means all. Okay. (laughs) You know, not just a select assortment from the east. All. And that's very important because how many of your sins have been forgiven? All right. Not just a select assortment of them. All of them. The Lamb of God took away the sins of the world, all of them. And so when it says, let all kings bow down before him, all nations serve him, is this a first advent prophecy or second advent prophecy? Second advent prophecy. Okay. Now, we have an easy time with that because we're in between the two. We're in between the two advents. And we can look back to first advent and see everything that was fulfilled. We can look ahead to second advent and we recognize that the things that are yet unfulfilled, well, they're coming up. And we have the perspective in between that's unique. It's, it's advantageous. We have the church age advantage, which is better than in the Old Testament where they're looking ahead to both of them. And really, even the millennium where they're looking back to both of them. See, our position in between is able to look back at one and forward to the other. And that's a unique perspective. It's a unique place in, uh, in uh, the dispensational arrangement. Other such passages. Other such passages. Now, where might I find other such passages in addition to Psalm 72? Well, let's, uh, in a couple moments here remaining... We have uh, Psalm 72, 10 and 11. That the kings of Tarshish and, the, and the, of the islands bring presents. The king of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. And let all kings bow down before him. All nations serve him. Now, depending on what Bible you have, you may have some cross-references there. You may have some footnotes there. These are the cross-references and the footnotes for the New American Standard. For all kings bow before him. It gives you there... Um, 
If I can pull this up here in a moment. Psalm 138, verse 4. Isaiah 49 and verse 23. And you can take some time to look at those verses if you'd like and find some correlating material. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth. Psalm 138 and verse 4. There's an interesting passage. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth. What well, does that apply to First Advent? Does that apply to these Magi? You know, they walked into this house here in Bethlehem, and what words did they hear out of his mouth? Well, depending on how old he is, <laughs> you know. They might have heard a goo-goo-ga-ga. They might have heard a hi. They might have heard, uh, you know. What kind of words would they hear out of Lillian's mouth? What kind of words would they hear, hear out of Andres' mouth? Okay. Or Mateo or Zoe. <laughs> you know, go find a two-year-old, a three-year-old. And uh, what kind of words are going to come out of their mouths? No telling sometimes. You know. Well, this is not the wise men in Bethlehem. This is not any time in First Advent. This is going to be Second Advent. This is when, going to be when the kings of the earth assemble in Jerusalem and they assemble to worship and they assemble to, to get Bible class. The kings of this earth will receive Bible teaching from the Lord Jesus Christ. Take it back to their nations. And they will hear the words of their mouth and they will give thanks. They will sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. It's an amazing, amazing promise. Another passage that we had here, in addition to Psalm 138, was Isaiah 49:23. Something even better than the uh, little cross-references and things that you have in your margins in your Bible, and they're all different. Uh, the, the set that you have there in the New American Standard Bible is going to be different from a set of cross-references maybe that the publishers of the NIV might put in there or the New King James or the King James, for example. Um, there is a work called The Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. If you're not familiar with it, uh, by R.A. Torrey, The Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. And if you want 500,000 cross-references, this is a book to get. This this will keep you in cross references for weeks, all right. And uh, so, for example, there's all the cross references for verses ten and eleven, where it says, "All kings bow down before him." And for all kings, it's given us it's given us the Psalm 138 and the Isaiah 49 passage that the, it was in the margin of, that we looked at a moment ago. But it's also giving us Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12. It's given us uh, Revelation 11:15, Revelation 17:14, 21, 24, and 26. For the nations, it's giving us Psalm 86, 9, Isaiah 11, 9, Isaiah 54, 5, Romans 11:25, Revelation 21 through 6. It's giving us a ton of links to cross-reference, to apply that pertain to this particular passage and things there. And uh, additional study can be done in each of those passages. And, and some, of them, uh, some of them you kind of scratch your head and say, well, I don't, I'm not sure how that ties in until you look at them and put them up side by side and say, oh, okay, I see where the cross-reference there is. I see where the link is and uh, the things there. Now again, with paper Bibles, you're you're doing a lot of page flipping. You got your New American Standard, and you got your Tory here. 
You're doing a lot of page flipping to find those. If you have the software, forget the page flipping. You're just going to look at the verses. And uh, in fact, if all you want to do is just look at the verse, you can hover your mouse there and it pops up and you read it. Hover your mouse there, it pops up and you read it. And so you can read a lot of verses in a very short amount of time simply by moving your mouse, looking at your verse. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. What a delight. Ah, I remember that passage. So you click on it and your Bible goes there. And now you can spend time in that passage. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. They'll be pleased to bring gifts. They're going to want to see at least the ones on positive volition, at least at the start, when the millennium begins with 100% believers. Okay? That will decrease as the years go by and more and more unbelieving kings choose to rebel. So, the gift of the Magi here does not fulfill Psalm 72 or other such Old Testament passages, New Testament passages, and so forth. What does it do? Why... Did these magi show up? Why are they bringing gifts? Say, well, A, they want to. <laughs> it's their opportunity. They love the Lord. They're excited about this coming king. But B, the father who's always planning ahead, these gifts provided for travel and living expenses for Joseph's family in Egypt. These gifts provided for travel and living expenses for Joseph's family in Egypt. These gifts provided for travel and living expenses for Joseph's family in Egypt. Let's say you had to flee your home tonight, go to Austin Bergstrom International Airport with your family, buy however many plane tickets you need to buy, to fly to Egypt. <laughs> Alright. Of course, you're paying cash for all this. For you and your husband and your kids and your whole family. See, so for me, I'd have to buy six tickets. Pay cash for these tickets. Fly to Egypt. When I get to Egypt, I need a house. I need food. I'm going to stay there for a year and a half. And then I need six plane tickets back. All right? You keep that kind of cash in a kitchen drawer somewhere? (laughs) All right? Um, Consider the offering that Joseph and Mary brought at the circumcision of the temple. Remember, they brought the two birds when they dedicated their firstborn. They brought the lowest level offering they could bring. The most inexpensive, the most uh, indicating their financial status. They weren't, they weren't wealthy people. Mary and Joseph were very humble people, financially speaking, and, of course, every other way. I think they were very humble people. They could not, in their own human ability, they could not flee to Egypt. They couldn't get there. I mean, just traveling in the ancient world was extraordinary. They couldn't get there. They couldn't live there. They couldn't afford to to stay there. 
You know, it's not like he has a thriving uh, carpentry business going on in Egypt. He's going to a foreign land. We see the provision that God is making. See, he is so far ahead of us. <laughs> we tend to think of things afterwards and say, oh, man, I should have thought of this. Oh, man, I didn't plan for that. Oh, why didn't I think of this? Okay. And the uh, Lord had it all arranged. Lord had it all arranged. You know, when they loaded up their donkeys and went from Nazareth to Bethlehem, they thought that they were going down there to pay their taxes, to register for the census, to arrange for the things there. Never had a, in the wildest dreams that they were going to relocate to Egypt for a year or so. No wildest dreams at all. But the Lord had it all planned out. Brought these, uh, these men and their gifts just in time. And so the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These were the gifts that were provided. And so, when they have to flee, they're able to do so. We'll, we'll spend more time on this. Joseph got up, it says in verse 14, took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Thanks to God the Father and his faithful provision, he was able to do so. This was to fulfill what had been spoken of by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son, Hosea, say, there again, more planning. We, we spent some time on that already. With, we've got Galilee references, Bethlehem references, Egypt references, Jerusalem references, Basra references. We have so many geography references that pertain to the Christ. How can they all be true? A skeptic, an unbeliever would look at that and say, well, they can't all be true. And yet God is bringing them all about perfectly in terms of Galilee, Bethlehem, Egypt, Jerusalem, Basra, and all the, the uh, geographical references that we have. Finally, point C, they, again, we're still referencing the Magi, they obeyed the dream, they obeyed the dream warning to avoid Herod. That's verse 12. Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod. See, they told, they told Herod they would. Herod said, go find him, come back and report to me, I'll come and worship. And they intended to. But having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Okay? You know, they could have come into town that way, but that wasn't God's design. God took them to Jerusalem first and then to Bethlehem. And then he directed them back to the east, not returning to Jerusalem. They left for their own country by another way. So they obeyed the dream warning to avoid Herod. And then, the angel appears to Joseph in a dream and says, flee to Egypt. And so they do. And then verse 16, Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the Magi. You know, in his mind, he'd been tricked. He became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under. Now, this is terrible. Whatever the population of Bethlehem was, several hundred, several thousand. All right. It's a pretty small town. The prophecy of Micah tells us that. You know, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be counted among the clans of, of uh, Judah. So whatever the size, the population was of this village, there were certainly, you know, a number of families. And however many of them had infants, however many of them had uh, male sons under two, you know. If there's anything like Austin Bible Church, I had a rash of babies born this year. <laughs> All right. Most of them were girls, though. And now all of these sons are being massacred. 
And this is a terrible thing. Just like the massacre of the infants in Moses' generation. It's a terrible thing. But even terrible things still work together for good. Do you believe that? Because Romans 8.28 says all things work together for good. And a massacre of babies is not a good thing. But it can work together for good. And obviously, every single one of these babies is under the age of accountability. And so every single one of these babies is, is uh, taken into glory. But this is a part of the Father's plan too. Notice verse 17. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and crying, great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children. And she refused to be comforted because they were no more. This element here too was spoken of prophetically. All right, and we'll deal with this. We'll, we'll deal with the massacre of the babies coming up and we'll see how even in the terrible things, how even in, in the exercise of human volition, Herod's volition to murder these babies in a terrible work of evil, and yet God the Father works all things together for good. And uh, prophecy is fulfilled, as in the case here. And more than simply prophecy being fulfilled... Um, the Christ is given protection. Just think about this in the upcoming week. Herod thinks he succeeds here. And beyond Herod, who else thinks he succeeds here? Who's motivating Herod's murder? Satan, that's right. Who was the murderer from the beginning? Okay, Satan. All right. And so... After being announced to the angels, after all of the angels being very clear that the Christ has come into the world, now what happens? God the Father allows, hides away as it were, allows for Mary, Joseph, and Jesus to be ushered into some privacy. And uh, even the fallen angels now don't know. Did this massacre succeed? Is this child dead? And it's quite remarkable, and I'll leave you with this as kind of extra credit. We go over to chapter 4, or go to the end of chapter 3. Go to the end of chapter 3, where 30 years have gone by now, at the end of Matthew chapter 3. And uh, the Lord comes to be baptized, and the Baptist, uh, John the Baptist, baptizes him. And in verse 16, after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting, uh, lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And what happens? There's the devil immediately. Chapter four and verse one, temptation in the wilderness. The devil comes to tempt him. See? For 30 years now, the devil has been left in the dark. <laughs> Did it work? Did it not work? Is he dead? Remember, the seed of the woman is supposed to crush the serpent's head. He doesn't want to see that happen. <laughs> and killing all those babies, wondering, hey, did I do it? Did I do it? Was I able to wipe out the, the serpent head crusher? And then 30 years later, the baptism, the heavens open, the Spirit descends, and behold, my beloved Son. And the devil says, oh, no. <laughs> he might have used a tougher word than that. I don't know if the devil swears or anything, but he would have said, oh, no. Okay? And the devil 
knows. He says, there's the serpent head crusher. There's the serpent head crusher. I am in trouble. <laughs> and he starts the temptations and he starts to try to work his deceit. And he starts to work his little, uh, his little temptations and his lies. If you are the son of God. And he knows it's true. He knows it's true. In chapter 4 and verse 3. And the devil's doing all these things. See, so we will discuss some of the elements of the baby massacre. Uh, but just recognize that part of it, we've got to expand our thinking beyond just simply the, the human realm and examine the angelic conflict of this entire thing. And recognize how God the Father hid his son, gave him time to grow up, gave him time to, to, uh, to be prepared for this conflict. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you for the truth of your word, and I do thank you for the hedge of protection you place around each one of us and the way that you, you shepherd us and you watch our growth and you prepare us and you equip us. And, and Father, when, the, when you lower the hedge and when you, uh, when you uh, provide for the temptations to run their course, when you uh, direct for the, uh, the uh, adversary to have permission to take some shots at us, Father, uh, you do so in your perfection. Because you've trained us, you've equipped us, you've given us armor, you've given us a shield of faith, given us a sword of the Spirit. And so, Father, we thank you that the hedge is high enough as it needs to be and it's, it's low enough as it needs to be. And, Father, you watch over our growth and, and uh, provide for these things in the course of our Christian way of life. So, Father, we thank you for the patterns that we've seen now in this, in this study. Pray that we might continue to study them, continue to let them sink in, continue to give us understanding. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.